Jason said, I lived in North Carolina for a few years, about 13 years, and was teaching at a school over there, and then uh, a couple of friends came to work at Cedarville, so I found my way up here a few years ago just to uh, teach in the School of Biblical and Theological Studies, so my, um, my area of teaching is primarily Old Testament stuff, so that's kind of what you get this morning. I apologize for that if you were looking for a New Testament message, but this is where I'm most comfortable and I, I love to teach, so... Um, uh, and especially in the book of Psalms. The Psalms is a book that uh, covers the realms of all of our emotions and our life experiences, and it gives us this in, interpretation of how to live for those. And I think you're going to find what Asaph has to say today in Psalm 73 to be very, uh, very applicable to us where we are, uh, perhaps even here in 21st century America. Um, and so I want to read from the text a little bit and just work our way through this. I um, I noticed not many of us have our original Hebrew in hand today, and so I'm reading from a translation. Uh, personally, the New American Standard is typically what I, I read from, so if, the, if yours is different than that, I apologize, but um, as these translators have done their best to record for us an accurate translation of the Hebrew, um, I'm looking forward to just working through this text bit by bit uh, in the time that God has given us this morning. It says this in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Here, Asaph starts with this this foundational understanding of the reality that our God, the God that he served, the God that we serve, is indeed a good God, especially to his children. So here we have just this, this basic foundational theological statement about who God is, what he's like, But then it goes drastically different, because the next word in verse 2 is, but as for me. See, what we're going to deal with today is how Asaph struggles to come to terms within the world in which he lives with the reality of the goodness, the greatness of our God. Some circumstances come up in his world, in his life, and he struggles to come to terms with exactly what that goodness might look like in the world in which he lives. And as I thought about this, I, I thought back a few years ago uh, when I had first gotten glasses. Uh, now, I, my vision was never really that bad, but uh, you know, as I was getting a little bit older, my gray hairs were telling me it might be your time. Um, and so I started to uh, kind of work through that process and went to a friend of mine who was a doctor and, and got some advice on that. And he tested my eyes and he said, you know, your problem is not that you need super magnification or, or something like that. I, you know, I wasn't bumping into walls and, and, you know, just not being able to drive and so forth. But he said, you just have what is called a slight astigmatism. And I'd never heard of that. I, I didn't know. I never really had a background in dealing with uh, glasses and contacts and things like that. And so I was, he was telling me exactly what that was. And so, of course, I didn't understand anything that he was talking about. So later on, I did my own research in the all-knowing Wikipedia, right? Um, And so as I was doing some research in Wikipedia, which is, uh, you know, um, a a professor's bane when it comes to the way that their students do research, but uh, I learned that astigmatism is this common, common defect of the eye where ultimately the vision, it, it, the, the eye has trouble focusing in on exactly what you're looking at. And so what happens is, because of that lack of sharp focus on the retina, the eye gives you, or the brain gives you, a fuzzy picture of what, what the world looks like. And so he said, I have that slight problem. And I could very, very clearly tell that as he put up, right, is it one or two? Is it three or four? That, things just got so much clearer as he was working through that. 
Uh, later on, I called my mom and said, you know, I would, I would be playing professional baseball right now if you had taken me to the doctor a long time ago. Uh, that explains why I couldn't hit the ball very well. But, well, I'd never heard of this. And so he kind of worked me through exactly what this was and figuring out how best to give me a prescription that would take the world and help me see it crisply and clearly. Not with this fuzziness that I had been dealing with. And so, whether things were far away or close to me, he gave me his prescription that, in that sense, allowed me to see a crisp image of the world in which I lived. Now, what I want to kind of contend to you this morning is that that's exactly what Asaph is doing. Um, He is giving us a prescription for understanding the world in which we live. You see, here, as Asaph says, I, I know God is good... Yet, I look at the world. As for me, I came close to stumbling. And what we're going to find is the reason Asaph struggled here, trying to understand his world, is because in some sense it seemed a little fuzzy to him. And what he learns and what he gives us in the text is how God brought him through these steps in his life so that ultimately he understood how crisp that picture could be. In other words, God in some sense kind of gave him spiritual spectacle, so to speak, so that he could clearly see and understand the world in which he lived. And so as we work through Psalm 73, I kind of want to think about it that way, that as we struggle, just like Asaph did with understanding the world in which we live and why things are the way they are, he's actually going to give us a prescription for refocusing our heart and our mind on his, on his word and how he interprets the way this world actually is. So he gives us the corrective lenses here to properly understand this world. Let me take you through Asaph's uh, teaching here, and you can kind of see what he was struggling with. So we know that he starts with this foundational theological idea of the goodness of God. So he understands that, but he's in some sense putting the goodness of God on display, but also on trial, so to speak, in, in the way that he's working through this. Because he says in verse 2, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling, My steps had almost slipped, and he tells us why. I looked at the goodness of God, then I looked at the world, and he says, verse 3, because I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what he does is he, he begins to look around him, and he sees the people who are living there, and he sees how they are prospering and how they are living, and he looks at those that he calls the the boastful, and he looks at it and he says, man, I'm, I'm kind of envious of that. I'm kind of jealous of the way that they're treated. Oh, by the way, as we read through Psalm 73, it will almost read as a commentary on our current election, just, just to kind of as an under, undercurrent there. Uh, verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant, the boastful, those who are prideful. He, he looked at them and he saw their prosperity and he saw how easy their life was. And he says, my feet almost stumbled over that. I didn't quite interpret that correctly. And so he kind of asked this question, and I'll kind of, kind of pose Asaph's words to this. Question number one that he asked is, how can God be good when the wicked are prospering? And that's kind of the question that he answers in the, or asks in the first half, of this, first half of this psalm as he's struggling to understand this. How can God be good when I look, at out, the, look out at the world and this is what I see? And he goes to great description, great lengths to describe exactly what this, what's happening. Look, look as we continue reading. Look at verse 4. 
He says, I looked at these boastful ones, these who are prosperous and yet at the same time very wicked. He says, verse 4, there are no pains in their death. Their body is, is fat. Well, now, we, our, our culture doesn't necessarily see that as a great thing, but the point is this. Everything that they needed physically, everything they needed monetarily, all the food that they needed, they had. They had everything they could possibly have, so much so that their bodies are healthy. There are, you know, they're the, uh, you know, the, the strong, the mighty people of the day. So he says this, verse 5. They're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued like mankind. So he looks at them and he says, look, all their needs are taken care of. Their bodies are well taken care of. They have all the provisions they could ever ask for. But on top of that, here's the problem, verse 6. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Instead of responding well to understand where that prosperity and those gifts come from, they respond with pride. And arrogance, and so much so that they wear that as a necklace around their neck. It says the garment of violence covers them. So here we have kind of a growing picture of these types of individuals. Boastful, arrogant, wicked, but at the same time rich and provided for, prideful, arrogant. And so here, Asaph is struggling with that, trying to understand. Now, what, how does this parallel with the goodness of of God, the, this God that I know to be so good. He goes on in verse 7, it says their eye um, bulges from fatness. So it kind of has this picture of they, they have so much food and so much stuff that their eye just kind of bulges out. The imaginations of their heart run riot. So they think whatever they want, they do whatever they want, and they do it in a prideful, arrogant, violent way. Verse 8, it says they mock They wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through all the earth. So we kind of get this comprehensive picture of a people who are boastful, who are prideful, who are arrogant, yet at the same time they are wealthy. Everything that they need is provided for. But then he turns the corner and says they use their arrogance, they use their pride to speak against God. So it's not just that they are just run-of-the-mill arrogant people, but they have actually placed and turned that arrogant heart against the God who has given them the very things that they have. So they're speaking out against the God of the universe, and it says that their tongue parades through all the earth, that you can almost hear them coming. These are the influential ones in society, those who are you know, turning the, the cogs of the way that the world works, so to speak. Verse 10, therefore, the the response or the effect of these people, he says, is that his people, and I think he's talking about God's people, return to this place, waters of abundance are drunk by them, and they say this, verse 11, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the most high God? So he kind of says, look, these arrogant ones, these boasters, these prideful ones, these violent ones, all that that comes with it says they're even having effect upon those who might otherwise serve God. Even his people are beginning to question the knowledge and even the goodness of their God. So the, the way that they respond to these individuals of society is not positive. And even he says, I'm about to stumble over this idea. How can God be good when this is what's going on? So he says in verse 12, 
Look, these are the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They have increased in wealth. So he comes to the end of this first section, and he says, I know God is good, but I look out there and I see these wicked, uh, these wicked men and women, and I see how, how they are the ones who are leading society. They have it all together. They're physically taken care of. They're mentally prepared. They are the influential ones in society. And I'm about to stumble over that because I'm, tr- I'm having trouble squaring that with what I know to be true about a good God and how he works. And so here his theology and the way that he sees the world are coming crashing together. And so ultimately he's having trouble seeing that. And what he's seeing is this fuzzy picture that's not crisp and clear for him. And so he's struggling to, to understand that. But it goes a little bit deeper. He asks on the one hand, how can God be good when the wicked prosper? He turns in the second part of the, of the chapter, in verse 13, to really asking the question about, is it really worth it to serve the Lord? He basically asks the question, have I served God for nothing? Not just, um, how does the goodness of God square with the wickedness and the prosperity of the wicked? But also, he begins to question whether it's worth it to serve God in the first place. Look what he says here. Look at verse 13. He says, surely, and that's a transition. Verse 1 started out with the same word. Verse 13, he says, now, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. So I've been making these strides spiritually to follow the Lord, to listen to his word, to worship him and do the things that he wants me to do. And he says, have I done that in vain? I, it seems as if I'm doing that in vain. I've, I've, he says, I've washed my hands in innocence. So he says, it looks like I'm doing that in vain because, verse 14, I have been stricken all day. All day long I have been stricken and chastened every morning. So he says, look, I, I'm trying to follow the Lord. I'm living a life of purity. I'm trying to do these things that I know to be true and real in my relationship with him, but then I get to the end of the day and I'm realizing that I've been chastened, I've been stricken, and whereas they are, their bodies are fat and taken care of and they're plump and everything they could possibly need, I'm stricken. And this is not good. I'm being chastened. I'm being affected in my faith by the very arrogance and pride of these that he has been describing. So he's really suffering. He's looking out into the world and he's trying to come to terms with this and he's saying, look, I I'm trying to follow the Lord, but it seems like it's in vain. It seems like this might not be worth it. So much so that he says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, meaning if I had said, look, I'm going to go explain to the people of God what's going on here. He says in verse 15, look, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he says, I am at such a point that if I had gone out to the people of God and tried to explain them how this world works and how to understand these things, I might have led them astray. So he's down here in the doldrums trying to figure out exactly how the world works, at the same time acknowledging the goodness of God, but he's struggling to understand not only his own spiritual life, but also how he might communicate that to a people. So he says in verse 16, he says, I pondered to understand this. I tried. I'm trying to be wise. I'm trying to have knowledge about this. I pondered to understand this, but it was troublesome in my sight. So he's really struggling. And I take great, uh, great comfort in this because here's one who was charged with leading the people of God in worship, writing scripture, one who was charged to shepherd the people in worship there in the temple and so forth. 
And he's struggling with these kind of thoughts. He's not immune to this. He's living in the real world trying to understand these things, and he's trying to question, understand, and rightly come to a a wise understanding of how God works in this world. And he says that was troublesome. But then the hinge of the verse, or the hinge of the chapter, is verse 17. He says, I tried to understand this, and as I pondered these things, it was troublesome to me. But he said, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. You see, he tried to understand whether God was good in relationship to how the wicked were prospering, and he was trying to understand how he could be trying to follow God and following him faithfully while at the same time being mistreated and persecuted and chastened. And he said, what really brought it together for me, when I really began to, to understand how, this, how I should understand these things, it happened when I was in worship. It happened when the congregation came together and we, we sang to one another and we talked to one another about our faith. You see, when we as a congregation, when you as a congregation gather together each week, it's not just to go through the motions, but it's to bring in all of our struggles, all of our hurt, all of our, the vagueness or the, the um, you know, kind of the trying to figure out the world and we're trying to see how our faith coincides with the way that the world works and where we're living and things become unclear. But we come together as a congregation and we sing songs about the gospel and we pray about the gospel and we read scriptures that inform us. And that that purpose is for you and I, for you to come together as a congregation to teach each other the gospel, to sing and talk about it so that it then refocuses our hearts around the things that are true. Because we always come into into worship together, trying to figure out the way that the world works. And that corporate worship is intended to have that effect on us as we encourage one another and teach each other the gospel through our words, through our songs, through our prayers, through the teaching of his word. And so Asaph says, that's what did it for me. As I was working through this, I came together with the people of God into the sanctuaries of God, and I tried to understand it, and boom, I got my answer. And so the next half of the psalm, the rest of the psalm, lays out for us what his answer was. Here, what we're going to find is the prescription to refocus our hearts on the things of God. So if we're wondering about how the wickedness of man coincides with the goodness of God in the world, or whether it is worth it for us to follow the Lord, like Asaph said, he gives us the answer. And it's a threefold answer. So let's start in verse 18, real quickly through the first two, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the third one. Verse 18, he says, surely, and there's a transition word again. He used it in verse 1, here in verse 13, and now in verse 18, he's transitioning to kind of the solution here. This is the prescription. He says, surely, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Kind of the first answer to his dilemma, as he tried to understand these things, is to refocus his mind around the destiny of the wicked. You see, he transitions, and as he's worshiping with the congregation, and as he's beginning to understand these things, His first stop is to say, look, 
this is not the end of all things. He turns his heart away from the physical world in which he lives, and he turns it to a spiritual realm, but he also turns it to an eternal realm. He refocuses from the temporal to the future eternal. And when he does that, what he sees is that God is the ultimate judge of all. So here he says, maybe it is worth it to follow the Lord, because look what he's going to do to those who are wicked. So he turns and he says, the destiny of the wicked is none other than judgment. And so to follow in their path, although it might be a path that is you know, kind of paved through this world, having everything that you might need physically, emotionally, whatever the case may be, whether it seems like they have it all together, he says, don't forget that judgment is in the future. But then he turns in verse 21, and he kind of turns back on himself. He says, on the one hand, God is going to judge the wicked, but let's don't forget, verse 21, he says, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, It's then that I was senseless and I was ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Now, this is kind of an interesting verse. And uh, so I think what he's saying here is this. On the one hand, the, the wicked are destined towards judgment. He seems to be saying this, is that in my pursuit of these questions and in my uh, relationship with the people of God, what I came to understand was this, is that I was pursuing this answer in a wrong way, and it was leading me down a path that didn't suffice. Now, here's, I think, what he's saying, is that when I tried to understand this in my own wisdom, in my own knowledge, what I ended up with was a heart that was bitter, and I ended up just being ignorant about these things. So much so that he uses this analogy of, I was senseless and ignorant, I was like a a beast out howling at the moon, so to speak. So when I came to try to answer this question in and of myself, I was insufficient to answer the question. So when I tried to look at my world and interpret my world and do so with my own knowledge, with my own wisdom, I might as well have been a dog trying to figure that out, an animal trying to figure it out, because I was without merit in that. So he says, I I became aware of my ignorance, that if I'm going to understand the great theological truth of God's goodness over against what I'm seeing out in the world, I'm not going to be able to come up with the proper answer for that. Because when I try to do it in my own strength, in my own wisdom, I hit a brick wall because I'm ignorant in and of myself. So what he does is he turns. And this is the last part, the kind of the last answer to this. On the one hand, it's that the wicked are ultimately doomed for judgment, that there's an eternal kind of future out there. And then also, when we're left to our own devices, we're going to find that we're going to be ignorant of these things. And so what he does is he turns in verses 23 to 28, some of my favorite passages in in Scripture, to talk about the nearness of God. So in response to um, acting in his own ignorance and trying to come to terms with it in his own strength, in his own knowledge, He turns, and as he's part of this congregation who's worshiping the Lord, he says, but look, here's what I know to be true. And he pins these words, um, which I think he he might be bringing over from David. Psalm 16 just reads exactly like this almost. Verse 23, look at this. He says, this is the case. I was acting like a beast. 
I was kind of uh, I was kind of numb to the things of God. But he says, verse twenty three. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. It's interesting to me that he turns and he says, "All right, so I, I I'm kind of misunderstanding the whole role of the wicked in society and why they're the way they are over against the goodness of God that I know and." It almost seems futile to me to pursue this. And then he says, look, here's the answer. I'm always with God. I'm continually with you. The answer, one of the the big solution, one of the main answers to his problem is, or this struggle that he's having, is the pervasive presence of God with him. So he says, look, nevertheless, despite the way that I've been acting and so forth, I understand that I am continually with you. And it's not just a... Man, I'm glad you're with me, God. It's more of, look, God, you are taking control of my situation. Look at what he says at the second half of that verse. He says, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. You are the one who has not just some presence that's out there somewhere, but you are there with me, carrying me along. You are undergirding. You are holding me up, and you're bringing me through. In fact, he says the way that God does this in verse 24 is through his counsel. Look what he says. With your counsel, you will guide me. So here he has this kind of comprehensive picture of God's presence with him, but it's not just a, oh, by the way, I'm over here in the corner type presence. It's a, he's undergirding me, he's pulling me along, he's strengthening me, and the way that he's leading me, the way that he's doing that is with his counsel. You see, there's a big contrast here between him seeking his, the answers to these questions in his own wisdom and in his own knowledge, and now God coming alongside and saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift you up and I'm going to bring you along, but also I'm going to give you the wisdom to understand these things. So he says the counsel of the Lord is what's guiding me along. And so he refocuses his heart and his mind, not upon his outward circumstances, the outward circumstances of the world, but upon the indwelling presence of God and also the counsel that God gives through his word. He refocuses his heart upon the one who's guiding him, but also giving him wisdom along the way. So he says, here's the the way that the, the believer's life works. God is present. God is uplifting, he's pulling us along, he's guiding us with his counsel, and then finally it ends up in the same place, eternity. He says, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. That's the path of our life. That if we're to understand the way that we, you and I function with the world and the way that we live in this world, we have to understand that God's presence is always with us, that he's bolstering us, he's lifting us up and guiding us, and he's also giving us his counsel so that we can understand these things. So when we seek answers to human solutions in our own wisdom, in our own strength, kind of just stepping back and scratching our head and trying to figure them out, we're going to be like a beast, like he says, you know, kind of a beast before God. Yet, if we remember that his counsel, his word, is what he's intending to lead us along to give us those answers, then we recognize that he's taking us on a path through this world. That we are these pilgrims and these strangers just passing through. At the same time, he's dragging us along. At the same time, he's given us counsel to understand, and he's bringing us to the end of glory. So he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And the answer is no one, right? And he says, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. 
And then he says this, and this is the reality of where Asaph was. He says, you know, my, my flesh, my heart, they're going to fail. They may fail, but God. In contrast to a flesh living in this world and a heart that might go after other things and be confused at times, he says, God, he's the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. So he turns and he says, in contrast to the wicked who seem to have it all together, have everything they need, have everything that they need to provide for their families, um, all the food that they could possibly have, they're well taken care of, and it just seems that they die and they just kind of go out peacefully. He says, in contrast to all of that, the one thing I have that they don't is God. And you know what? He seems to be saying that's enough. There's nothing else here on earth, he says in verse 25, that compares to the one that he knows who lives, who dwells in the heavens. And he says, look, there's going to be times where this world brings us through the grinder, so to speak, and our flesh is going to fail, we're going to think improperly, we're going to respond wrong, our hearts are going to fail, we're just going to be squished, we're going to be pressed hard against this world. But he says, look, the, the, the true hope that we have is that we have a God who's with us because he is the one who strengthens the heart and he is the one who is our portion. Now, what does that mean? He's our portion. You know, um, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and were headed to the promised land, ultimately Joshua takes them in, Moses laid out everything that they were supposed to do. And as they went into the land of Canaan, they were supposed to each have a portion of that land, right? Each one was supposed to have a section upon which their family, their tribe would live. Except for one. It's interesting. Turn, put your finger here for just a second. Real quickly, turn back to Numbers with me for just one second. Numbers chapter 18. Numbers chapter 18. Here, Moses says, the Lord says to Aaron, Aaron, you, that is you as the priest, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, you guys shall have no inheritance in their land, nor on any portion among them. Then he says this, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. And Asaph, a Levite, as we're working through this, understands that. And he says, in my interaction with the world, as I try to figure out how to live in this world, I'm going to realize that uh, my heart and my flesh are going to fail at times in that. But I have to remember that there's a God who's there undergirding my heart. And at the same time, he is my portion. Just like was told to Aaron, look, you don't have land. You have me, is the idea. And that seems to be where he lands. And struggling to understand how do I relate to this world and how do I understand these things, he reminds him, look, you can take it all away. You can take away all the possessions, all the food, all the social influence, whatever the case may be, like these wicked people have, and yet they don't have what I have. Namely, that's God. He's close. He's there. He's present. He is my portion, and that's enough, he seems to be saying. Take it, everything else away. Take all the comforts of this world away, but you still have the Lord. That's enough. 
So he concludes his book or his psalm this way. He says, look, behold, those who are far from you will perish. Verse 27, you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But then he now comes back around to where he began. He, by, he began by saying, I know God is good, but I came close to stumbling. Now he comes all the way back around and he says, but as for me, in contrast to the wicked who are ultimately going to perish, he says, what's good is the nearness of God. He says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. So he comes back around to verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He comes back around at the end and says, here's what's good about God. He's close. He's an intimate God. He's present with us. He's leading us, and he's bringing us to glory. And so therefore he says, look, I've made that God, that Lord, Adonai Yahweh, it says here, I have made Adonai Yahweh my refuge. That's where I'm going to run. When I'm having struggle understanding the way that this world is working and functioning and not sure how everything is going to come out, I have one place to go. And that's to find a refuge in the one who is with me already, who's undergirding me. Because he is my portion, he is my promise, he is my hope. So he says, ultimately, that's, that's the one I'm going to talk about. I'm going to tell of all of his works because he and he alone is my refuge and he is my portion when my flesh and my heart don't, don't stand it, can't stand it. So I always find Psalm 73, Asaph's words here, to be so refreshing. Because you and I live in a, in a world that we struggle to understand and come to terms with sometimes. Um, even in a situation like our electoral cycle right now. So we try to understand those things. We have to keep pushing ourselves back to Scripture. We have to keep pushing ourselves back to the refuge that we find in our Lord and Savior. Because that's where our only hope is found. And He is our port. And that is the only thing that has been promised to us. And as a result of that, we can rejoice with Asaph, and we can proclaim God's goodness, and we can share that goodness with others. Can I pray for us? Our God, you've been so good to us. You've provided um, the Lord Jesus Christ to, to die for us, um, to pay the penalty of our sins, but also to pave the way for us to new life. Because of his resurrection, we also can have new life. And so we're thankful for that. And so, God, today we, we thank you for the gospel that calls us to find our refuge in him. And so we pray that you will cause these realities, the truth of these words that Asaph has penned, to be very true and very real in our lives this week. Because, God, our, our flesh and our heart are going to fail us uh, often. Um, but we know that you're there, you're present with us, but you're also there to be the strength of our heart and you are our portion, not just for now, not just in time, but forever. And so we thank you for the truth of your word as it instructs our heart and encourages us uh, to persevere. And so we pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.